and welcome back to the Ghastly Podcast. This week is going to be a great episode. We're looking at Robert Wise's 1963 The Haunting, a continuation of our Haunted Houses series. There's a lot to unpack with this one. So without further ado, join us for The Haunting. It was an evil house from the beginning, a house that was born bad. So The Haunting is a film which is actually based on a book. So it's based on the book The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which had come out in 1959, so four years prior. And it's directed by Robert Wise, who you may know from some of his other films, which for some reason include West Side Story and The Sound of Music. (laughs) Who would have thought it? That's amazing. Such such broad Such a versatility. The fact that you can go from just like an enormous high budget mm. musical to something like this, it's yeah, it's this is actually incredible. sandwiched in between the two. You've got West Side Story, then The Haunting, then immediately The Sound of Music. I love it, really. Yeah, my god, that's awesome! Wow, so okay, we have Robert Wise directing mm-hmm. and screenplay. The Nelson, screenplay, Gidding. yes, is my Nelson Gidding, so as an adaptation. I haven't heard of Nelson Gidding before, but I think it's safe to say that he did a good job. Yeah, I think so. And I think he also (laughs) made it his own. Mm, For sure. I don't think he wrote any majorly noted other films. Fair. Wow. It might depend. Some people might argue with that. Some people might go, no, I bloody (laughs) love him. I don't know. I've just seen here The Andromeda Strain. I've never heard of it, but. Sounds fun. Some some people might take issue with that, to which case, fair enough. I just haven't seen or heard of any of his other films. Well, it could very well end up on the podcast one day. So Maybe. Okay, so looking at the plot, this film opens uh, with the house and a monologue. And the monologue is pretty much lifted from the book, I gather. Mm. haven't read the book, but it's delivered by Professor Markway, Dr. Markway, I guess. and. Yes. He is yeah, our Please resident. use his correct title, Nick. That's actually very disrespectful. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Dr. Markway. Please don't come for me. Um, he is our resident supernatural expert. Mm-hmm. And he's giving us this monologue about the background of this particular house, Hill House, which has this tortuous history uh, involving death, pretty much. So it was built by a man called Hugh Crane. Mm-hmm. His wife uh, was intended to be the recipient of the house. It was a gift, but she dies before she even sets eyes on the house in a carriage accident, which was caused by horses bolting and the carriage being caused to hit a tree. Mm. And following that, there are a sequence of unfortunate deaths. The daughter of Hugh Crane, Abigail Crane, she grows up, she, she grows old in the house she dies one night when she's rapping on the wall of her room, which also happens to be the nursery, which she grows up in, which is kind of creepy. Mm. But she's rapping on the wall with her cane. Her companion, who is meant to be looking after her in her old age, doesn't hear her because she's fooling around with her farmhand, to quote. And she dies, Abigail. And she leaves the companion to preside over the house, pretty much, until the companion is driven I guess we, we gather driven to insanity 
and she kills herself quite spectacularly by climbing this enormous winding staircase mm. in the library of the house. Uh, Which will be relevant later. <laughs> mm. Very relevant. And hangs herself from there. And the, the opening sequence is amazing, actually. I really loved the way that they dealt with angles and you see just a shot of the library below and then mm. the companion drops into into frame as she swings from the rope and I think it was really effective. I know, it's really nice. I think it really sets the tone, mm. shall we say. They say that whatever there was and still is in the house eventually drove the companion mad. So we zoom into the present day, well, the present day for the film, and we have Ellen Avance, who is our protagonist, and she's on our way, she's on her way to take part in a study which is being um, carried out at Hill House by Dr. Markway, and he's also invited a couple of other subjects to take part in the study, which is to elucidate on the presence of supernatural phenomena in everyday life but he's specifically chosen Hill House because it is widely regarded for being a haunted place somewhere with plenty of supernatural history to it. Okay so Eleanor arrives at the house and there she obviously meets Dr Markway and she also meets the other two people who are participating in this experiment with her. So one is Theodora, who will mainly be referred to as Theo in the film and by us from now on. And there is also the one remaining heir of Mrs Sanderson, which is Luke Sanderson. Now, everyone here was chosen for a reason. So Theo is a psychic. She's got ESP. She's like, she's got ESPN or something. That was so cringe. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and Eleanor, of course, um, had a paranormal experience as a child. Which was, I, um, it was the stones, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. So she's clearly very sensitive to the paranormal. And mm. meanwhile, Mr. Sanderson mm. doesn't believe in the supernatural at all. So it's an interesting dynamic that they've got going on. So the four of them are going to participate in this experiment together. Obviously the three subjects and... Dr. Markway mm. himself. There's a series of hauntings that take place at night mm -hmm. when you have uh, Theo and Nell as she becomes effectively, I'm sorry, affectionately, as she becomes affectionately known mm -hmm. uh, by Theo. But how did you know my nickname is Nell? Well, that is the affectionate term for Eleanor, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I suppose it is. <laughs> what a nice way of putting it. Affectionate term for Theodora is Theo. Theo. We're going to be great friends, Theo. Like sisters. Basically, what happens is they arrive in the house, they get assigned to their bedrooms, and then we see them spending their first night there. So Eleanor and Theo are obviously in a room together. And what happens is that while they're there, while they're trying to get to sleep, is they can hear this banging noise against the door. And they can hear this kind of laughter echoing around the house. And obviously Eleanor's terrified. But at the same time, she also has this kind of contradictory feeling which she expresses to Theo and that she has some kind of affinity for the house. Mm. And obviously this is something that becomes a recurring theme across um, the film. Mm. And so obviously that's pretty scary. But, you know, ultimately it is just some banging on the wall. It's not going to kill them. <laughs> and so they wake up, they live to fight another day. 
They wake Quite up. an unsympathetic view. <laughs> no, no, to be fair, of course, if it was me, I would be terrified. But like, mm-hmm. ultimately, it is just noises. But yeah, it's like, Nell and Theo, get a grip, please. Yeah, exactly. God. <laughs> and so the next day, they go exploring. They go walking around the house. And what they find is they find a cold spot. Do you know how they managed to achieve the cold spot effect? Because obviously mm. you can't show temperature. Wasn't it that they... On screen. This is... If my memory serves me correctly, it's it's done with lighting and some kind of chemical that they, they painted onto the hands and faces yeah. of the actors. So it's just kind right? of like actual special makeup that they That's put amazing. on them. And so with the lighting that they used, the makeup has this special compound in it, which means that when they walked onto this area that was meant to be the cold spot, what would happen is that they would suddenly look as though they had gone very, very pale very quickly. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this film is just covered in incredible It's so creative. I love effect. it. It's really creative. And it really took me back because a lot of it is just hiding under the surface. It's not very obvious. And then mm. you kind of read a couple of things here and there, and then you just start to realise how much care and creativity went into creating some of the shots. For example, yeah. well, later on when Dr. Markway's wife, Grace, arrives at the house, she kind of upsets the situation a little bit by being defiant in, the, in, in her attitude of staying in the house one night to prove that there's no such thing as a supernatural and her husband's work is all ridiculous and she doesn't mm. have to pay any attention to it and they can move on to something else. She's obviously just got a massive chip on her shoulder with the fact that Dr. Mark Way is so into the supernatural and he's dedicated his life to its study. So that night, however, things start to reach a climax and Eleanor is overwhelmed with this obsession with almost fulfilling the companion's role, I think you could Mm -hmm. say. Uh, And in one scene, she starts to climb the staircase, um, which is the place from where the companion hanged herself. Mm. And this staircase is so... It's my favourite part. It's amazing. It's incredible just in terms of the set, but then also just the way that they shot it was also amazing in the sense that they, what they managed to do was create a mount for the camera that could slide up and down the spiral staircase's rail. Mm -hmm. And they planted the camera on top And then they were able to reverse the footage. So they dropped it and it slid all the way down the banister. And then they were able to reverse the footage and create this incredible sort of sweeping, disorientating shot uh, Mm. when she's ascending the staircase. And luckily, Dr. Markway is able to ascend the rickety as hell staircase, which isn't meant to hold two people, but Mm. it manages to just about... Uh, It's almost about to come away from the wall and it's pretty stressful. But he manages to stop Eleanor from fulfilling the companion's role from hanging herself or Mm. just doing something similar from the staircase. Honestly, I think spiral staircases are terrifying anyway, even without having to chase someone up it who's (laughs) about to try and hang herself. I think the problem is as well is that they're so hard. I I think I'd slip and just bang Mm, something. They have this very disorienting effect. <laughs> they do. You're just kind of winding and winding. You get dizzy, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that very moment where she's rescued by the doctor, who at this stage, she's actually developed kind of a sort of schoolgirl crush on. 
just through conversations with him. And I think she sees him as a kind of father figure. And Mm -hmm. at this very point, Grace Markway, who has, this is important, she's been missing in the house uh, for quite a while at this point. We hear her scream and she goes missing from the nursery, which is where she was staying, which you might remember Mm. has the cold spot outside it. Yeah, the nursery is definitely the most haunted Mm. area. Because that's where Abigail lived pretty much um, Mm -hmm. for her entire life. Uh, And she's gone missing from the nursery and I just want to point out, Dr. Markway does not seem that phased that his wife's gone missing. He's just kind of like, yeah, she'll turn up. It's fine. No, they didn't seem like they had the healthiest relationship No, in the world. Um, Neither of them seem to care about each other very much. Yeah, pretty not bothered, to be honest. Both of them trivialise in the other. But there's this... Anyway, but anyway. <laughs> Who am I to judge? No, exactly. Well, she has an amazing re-emergence when she pulls open this trap door above Eleanor and Markway's heads and she just looms out and there's really it's just it's uncomfortable the <laughs> shot it is just her looking a bit kind of like oh my god where am I but it she swings into view and then Eleanor's shocked and she falls unconscious uh, the next day we see everyone trying to get Eleanor out of the house as soon as possible pretty much because Dr Markway admits okay you weren't in a good enough frame of mind to be involved in this Mm. project. I'm very sorry, it's my fault. Best that you go home. And what happens then? So what happens is that Eleanor keeps begging and begging to be able to stay. And so what she, but what ends up happening in the end when everyone's like, no, you, you have to leave, is that she ends up getting in the car and she starts kind of driving kind of manically mm. towards the front gates. So that in itself is already obviously a dangerous situation. Mm. And then there seems to be some kind of ghostly influence, perhaps some kind of poltergeist, for example, just like when Eleanor was a child, that seems to be controlling the steering wheel. Mm. It's kind of and the so house, she, isn't it? The house is mm-hmm. somehow making its way into her car. She can't leave. Mm. But maybe it's not the house. Mm, yes, that's Maybe, true. Maybe, I don't know, she's kind of, I don't know. It's uh, that, That's what's interesting about this film is that we're not really sure mm. to what extent Eleanor is being driven to do certain things. The house never really makes itself concrete in any way. Mm. It's very well, invisible. Well, crucially, whatever it is, whatever this force is, at first Eleanor is scared of it, but then you see her kind of submit to it mm, mm. and accept it. Yeah. And so she then crashes into a tree Mm. because she sees Grace's face again. Mm. And this is what kind of is the impetus for Eleanor to just completely surrender all control. Mm. And then she crashes and dies. Mm. And Grace has once again vanished again. And she's Mm -hmm. off away into the house, into the grounds. No one knows. But then she has to turn up right when Eleanor's about to drive into a tree and then Mm -hmm. she swerves or we think she swerves it's never fully resolved but yeah the 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 idea is that Grace is once again aligned with Eleanor in this kind of destructive way Mm. um I think we need to look back a little more at Eleanor about her background. Mm. Um, so what can you tell us about that, Joanna? 
so Eleanor is definitely a kind of outsider figure. Mm. So she's had traumatic experiences in the past regarding um, obviously the poltergeist activity that she experienced as a child. And then what happened, so obviously if that's not bad enough, that kind of trauma, she then has to spend most of her life acting as her mother's carer. Mm. And so when her mother dies, she kind of is left of this sense of lack of purpose mm. and this kind of feeling of being perhaps unable to re-enter society. So she's definitely positioned as an outsider, I would say. Mm. Someone who doesn't really feel anchored mm. and she has no place it's it's made uh, no. obvious in the fact that she's living in the living room of her sister's house which she shares with mm. her husband and she pays rent for the living room but she has never had a proper job because she's been looking after her mother that's a really interesting parallel with abigail crane and the companion mm. and there's a really nice lining up of how the companion is absent and Abigail yeah. is demanding for help with her by knocking her cane against the wall. And we learn that there's this real guilt that's plaguing Eleanor uh, mm. as to whether she willingly allowed her mother to die when she too was demanding help in a similar way. She was knocking on the wall and that's what she would do when she wanted help. She'd knock on the wall. But she has this terrible fear that she did hear and she didn't mm. come and and it, therefore it's somehow her fault exactly so there's all these kind of conflicting um feelings kind of bubbling up in eleanor and most of all there's this incredible repression in her as well and mm. i think that's really interesting in terms of how theo interacts with that sense of oppression and how um Eleanor and Theo interact is really interesting because you find in Theo mm. Eleanor's opposite, I suppose. Yeah. Theo's very liberated. She's very confident, flirtatious, etc. Yeah. So this this really good line actually that kind of encapsulates the the visual difference of Eleanor and Theo. Mm. Of course, they're well, they're different in terms of hair colour. Eleanor's got what I assume is a kind of blondish, mousy hair colour. Theo's got mm. really sort of pitch black hair. And um, also in their clothing, they're incredibly different. And she yeah, says... Yeah, so did you know that... Do you know who the designer for all of Theo's clothes is? No. Yeah, so they actually got Mary Quant to design Theo's wardrobe. Oh, that's so amazing. So for anyone who doesn't know who Mary Quant is, she was a really, really major British fashion designer in the 1960s. Oh, wow. And I guess that's kind of like to show just how kind of like very modern Theo is. A very modern woman. Exactly. And then contrary to that, Eleanor is in tweed, isn't she, pretty much? Or very plain clothes, whereas Theo's in in, in felts and um, bolder colours. And their relationship is quite interesting because it's been analysed a lot for its queer coding. Mm. Yeah. So essentially, perhaps the word queer coding in a way isn't necessarily applicable in this case because actually mm. Theo is basically one of the earliest characters in Hollywood who actually is this technically a Hollywood film? Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's yeah, okay, perfect. It was filmed so, in, in the UK, she, but it was it was MGM, so definitely a Hollywood film. Yeah, okay, film. so it counts, it counts. So she is basically one of the earliest 
Hollywood um, characters, except pre-code, obviously, mm. um, to kind of explicitly be portrayed as lesbian. And actually, oh. it was even made it was made even more obvious in the original script. I don't know if you knew this, but there was this idea that in our first introduction to Theo, so we actually see her in her life before um, going to the house. Um, there's this idea that she's just been left by her lover and her lover is like left a message in lipstick on the window. So they made wow. it very, very obvious. This is not just a case of, for example, maybe directors being slightly oblivious to the undertones of their work or not wanting to get in trouble with the censors. This is kind of obvious. So I would say it goes beyond coding to some extent, at least for Theo. No, for, for sure, for sure. And And Theo is quite forward in her advances you could say mm. towards Nell because she kind of ironically sarcastically says oh you know let's be sisters which is yeah. which is really interesting because it's almost kind of taking apart the idea of queer coding in the first place and being like and, and mm. the idea of the companion as well is almost a kind of um nebulous euphemistic reference to um two women who are lovers but they're they can't be portrayed as such or as concretely as they are. They have to be kind of um, codified and uh, explained in a different way, in a different dynamic. Uh, mm. And there's a really great line where Eleanor addresses Theo and she says, um, God makes, God made many mistakes, uh, including you mm. or something, something approximate to that. And then I think it's interesting where you have the the kind of the the advances of Theo, but then you have Dr. Markway on the other side. Uh, yeah, so you've got this tension mm, almost created. Mm, and Eleanor's shown to pretty much fluctuate between the influences of Theo and the influences of, which is combined with a kind of uh, a will to transgress her mother's mm. will, I suppose. If you're looking at, the uh, as the mother is representative of Abigail and the companion's dynamic, and Eleanor is fulfilling the companion role, and the companion uh, mm. left or abandoned Abigail for the farmhand. Then you could say that by involving herself with Theo, or by um, by kind of leaning towards this kind of transgression, she's uh, she's liberating herself from her mother's influence, the kind of the lingering guilt, the control, that kind of thing. But then in Dr. Markway, we have a father figure uh, who promises care and attention and also, yeah, heteronormativity, I suppose, as well. That's very interesting, very Freudian analysis. I mean, I'd love to try and do some kind of Oedipal complex analysis but I just don't understand it well enough I'm going to be honest me neither don't worry <laughs> well can't you take a joke I didn't know you were serious about Markway of course you did okay but he shouldn't be allowed to get away with it get away with what you're making a fool of yourself over him suppose I'm not though you'd mind terribly if you turned out to be wrong for once wouldn't you oh, you poor stupid innocent I'd rather be innocent than like you Meaning what? Now who's being stupid and innocent? You know perfectly well what I mean. Moving on to Eleanor's relationship with the house. Hmm. I think it is interesting, as you said, how there's this kind of disgust that's established between, you know, that Eleanor feels for the house. But at the same time, she's 
obsessed with it. And she's obsessed yeah. with the idea of the house as this symbol of her kind of belonging at last. You know, as, as we mentioned, she hasn't really ever had a place before. She is transfixed by this idea that she's in, she's part of a family, that she, things are really happening to her. Well, did you know that um, apparently in the original script, there was also this idea that actually it's very... It sounds kind of silly nowadays, obviously, because everyone's so used to these theories. They're like, oh, did you know that in Rugrats they were actually all dead babies, etc." But there was this original idea um, that Nelson Gidding had that actually Eleanor is having a nervous breakdown and that she's in a psychiatric hospital. Psychiatric, excuse me. She's in a psychiatric hospital and that basically Dr. Markway is her doctor and all oh. these noises and the cold, uh, like the treatment. So that is one way also of looking at it. Right. However, wow. he did say to Shirley Jackson, the original author, he was like, oh yeah, and I and I have this really interesting um, interpretation of it. And she was like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Well, I definitely did write it intending for it to just be supernatural, mm. but... That sounds nice as well. <laughs> so I wow. guess there's also just perhaps this other angle you can put on it. But I think perhaps in the end they did go with more of a straight supernatural line. Mm. And I think that's what works the best if they they keep it as literal as they can. But then mm. by, by virtue of it being literal, it can then be taken in different directions. Um, exactly. Because then, if, if we it, really want to, we can still do the psych psychiatric psychiatric hospital theory. Kind of quasi Shutter Island. I will take a lot from this filthy house for his sake, but I will not go along with hurting a child. No, I will not. I will get my mouth to open right now, and I will yell. I will yell. I will yell. Because I think at the end of the it is interesting because there is clearly some resistance still in her. Mm. At first she does try and fight against the steering wheel, mm. but then she kind of finally ultimately submits to mm. it. She's but I don't necessarily think at any point other than at the end she was ever completely enthralled by the house. There's so many moments where, say for example, when Dr. Mark Way goes to save her, for example, there's so many moments where she nearly gives up, mm. but then is able to be pulled back. Mm. Yeah, the, I think I think the majority of her interest in the house is the idea that the house is interested in her, because um, that's what she that's what she really dislikes about the presence of Grace, um, mm. because Grace goes missing and the house is is involving Grace in its plan for Eleanor's yeah. soul. Is that too cliche? But. No, no, I think that's a fair description. Okay, cool. By the way, I wanted to know, do you think that Grace represents some kind of threat for Eleanor or oh, not? Because yeah. on the one hand, obviously, she is the wife of Dr. Mark Wayne. Mm. But on the other hand, as we were saying before, they don't really seem to have the most loving relationship in the world. Mm, mm. I, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people have looked at Grace as this kind of model woman haven't they? A kind of mm. almost like an ideal version of what Eleanor could be in a kind of heteronormative, heteronormative context if she follows that path of identity. Um, but then at the same time, she's got a prohibitive um, element to her because, of course, she gets mm. in the way of 
Eleanor's infatuation with Dr. Markway. And then on the other level, the house mm. becomes involved with Grace and then we see Grace disappear and then the house looks yeah, like Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and then and then Eleanor's Do you think it's almost as if kind of like Grace is perceived as this enemy in terms of the house's affections in a way? In terms of it's kind of rival. In terms of Eleanor kind she, of competing, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because obviously Eleanor has this affinity for it and then oh it's Grace who goes missing. Yeah. That's so unfair. Yeah, and she just feels she's like oh, Grace is just not enough, you know. Uh I need to stay yeah. here. I need to satisfy the house. The house wants me. Uh let me stay. But And I think it's interesting as well that the moment which ultimately leads to Eleanor's death and kind of like complete submission to kind of like the attraction of the house mm. is Grace appearing. Mm. Mm. Grace is, she's, she's an, she's kind of, she engineers the Mm. house's plan, I guess, uh, in those kind of climactic moments. (sighs) Great. She, she definitely says that she's been, she has no idea where she's been, which I think is pretty amazing because Mm. that means she was in some kind of stupor for, like, well, what I want to know is why she, when she goes missing after the trap door, she isn't picked up. The husband doesn't open the trap door. Dr. Markway doesn't think, okay, watch. Does she just close the trap door again and head off again? Uh, is she possessed? <laughs> I think she might be possessed. I don't know. Because she has this crazy look in her eyes, which might just be because mm. she's been lost for ages and it's, it's a pretty overwhelming house, but mm. it's an interesting idea for sure. Um, and the house itself is incredibly claustrophobic, even though it's yeah. got a huge size to it. It's So it's not an ordinary house, is it? He, he actually says at the start that the architect of the house has a weird idea of what houses should look like. <laughs> and so everything seems to be slightly off-centre. Oh, yeah, that's Things it. seem to be slightly askew mm. and like that's what causes the doors and um things to open and close by themselves and i guess that's where things like the spiral staircase as well whoever thought that was a good idea yeah everything's just everything's unbalanced off. isn't it and and you get that with off. the you get that with the filming and the use of the, t- the tilting angles and mm. that scene when eleanor gets kind of propelled into the room uh when she when she's trying to pull open the door and the and the camera's tilting in this way that makes the corridor look like it's moving forwards and backwards. And then she goes flying into the drapes. It's all just mm. so off kilter. Um, yeah. And also I think something has to be said for how saturated the sets are with just stuff Yeah, because it's, like I said, it's a, it's a huge house, but at the same time, it's just really hemmed in. There's, it, it's full of stuff and furniture and things on the walls and it's just overwhelming even in black and white you feel overwhelmed by it Mm, it's extremely claustrophobic Mm. and not only claustrophobic but when you combine that with the element of everything being slightly off kilter Mm. everything being slightly wrong Mm. it almost kind of feels like you're in one of those like you know like art installations (laughs) where you have to walk in a straight line but you feel like you're not ever been to one of them i'm just thinking of that scene on in bridesmaids when she's like dancing down <laughs> the side of the road to prove that she's not drunk. Sorry, what 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 do you what do you mean? Just as in like those things where have you never been to one where you have to like walk through a corridor and you are walking in a straight line, but like the way 
it's angled like the perspective and like the darkness it makes you feel like oh god you're walking at a weird angle <laughs> well i have i have is it a bit like the beer goggles you know when you're just try- you're trying to yeah kind of go to like down. the camera obscura in edinburgh or something oh amazing i think there's one there <sighs> i need to go to edinburgh anyway uh <laughs> what are we talking off about off topic very off topic um <laughs> Actually, I wanted to ask you something. Speaking of black and white, what do you think about the decision to film it in black and white? Because 1963, obviously, this is the point where we're kind of getting colour films becoming more and more popular. As demonstrated by... And actually, the films that we're going to look at in the next episode are all going to be colour films. Mm. So that's how we've divided um, this theme. Mm. And now, to be fair, I understand. I also appreciate that Apparently the contract kind of specified it actually had to be shot in black and white, probably for budget reasons. But I feel like there is also still an element of choice in this because um, Robert Wise basically said that he thought that black and white was appropriate and he was actually very happy um, that it could only be filmed in black and white. Mm. I think- and um, actually when someone tried to colorize it in 1990, he actually prevented it. He vetoed it. Yeah, he vetoed it. And wow. he was like, excuse me. I've got a contract here and it says black and white. No. <laughs> so actually, yeah, that's why it never happened. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he was very, I mean, he was very driven by his, you know, he's sticking with his choices there. Um, yeah. So what do you think about that? I think it, I think it works really nicely. It's hard to say because mm. of course it's the only version that I know, but I, the, the fact that it's also combined with that, what for the time was quite an unusual um, aspect ratio, I believe. Uh, yeah. The use of the wide angle and black and white with the wide angle with tilted shots as well apparently was very unusual for a film and so in a way this film was kind of combining these techniques and and these uh technical elements in in quite Mm. an original way so i really respect that and i think the fact that it is this this tiny little oasis of black and white, this kind of creepy oasis of black and white in a time where everything yeah. is technicolor. Uh, I think that just really suits. It's like a cold spot, isn't it? Um, so I think that's really apt, honestly. What do you think? Um, I think as well as that, it kind of recalls, oh, what's it called? You know, um, that type of camera they use, when, you know, like most haunted like Yvette Field in marches into oh, yeah. the stupid old Tudor hall. Oh, like an infrared camera, is it? Yeah, like an infrared. That's the, that's the one I was looking for. It kind of almost recalls that at points. And so obviously that's more of a modern thing, but I think also because of that, I do kind of perhaps see exactly what um, Robert Wise means when he says that like black and white really suits horror. Mm, I really think it does. I mean the lighthouse was terrifying i think specifically because it was in black and white um mm. and with that hemmed in ratio as well uh which but it's yeah. interesting that this film still manages to be claustrophobic even though it's in mm. wide angle i think that's really interesting it all contributes to this kind of very oppressive atmosphere and yet there's something about this kind of oppression and suffocation that for some reason, Eleanor finds an affinity with. Mm, for sure. And I think it's because that's kind of like all she's ever known. Mm, mm. And the kind of guilt at the fact that her situation has now changed mm. and that she now no longer has to be her mother's carer mm. rather than feeling capable of kind of re-entering into society. She just kind of wants that comfort blanket back, no matter how actually bad it is for her. Mm. 
as a person. Mm. And then combined with the fact that you've got Theo, who's sort of yeah. encouraging yeah, this side of... Yeah, Theo represents just kind of like transgressive, yeah, and she, scary. Exactly. It's this completely um, transgressive Modernity. side of Eleanor that's emerging in a way. Um, mm. And I think that's really interesting in that in that essay by Patricia White, where she talks about female spectator, lesbian spectre, she mm-hmm. does discuss the presence of the men and yeah. um, how they are almost oblivious to even the potential for a relationship, a romantic relationship, a seduction to occur between Theo and Nell. And yeah, they don't care. Yeah, and, and there's that amazing kind of, moment where you have Nell and Theo terrified by this sound, this banging, Mm. which could be representative. I don't know. You could imagine that as a kind of almost like the elephant in the room, I suppose. Um, Maybe that's reductive. I don't know. But you have that kind (laughs) of, yeah, there's like something there, but it's, it's invisible and and it's, it's terrifying, you know, and the men, the men arrive from their walk outside and they're like, what? We didn't hear any banging. What's going on? What? You know, like, you guys are crazy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it's almost just like, yeah, like the lesbian just can't exist in the eyes of heteronormativity. Uh, and so mm. it's not even, it's not even the idea that it could. It's just, it's it's almost supernatural in that sense. It's it's intangible. It has no evidence. And I think that's quite interesting that it just can't exist under that gaze. Also, speaking of the men, I wanted to ask you if you had like any thoughts at all, because I just realised we haven't spoken about him even in passing, about um, Mr. Sanderson. So yeah, you know, the sceptic guy. Because mm. honestly, I'm trying to look back on it. And I'm like, what were you there for? <laughs> Who were you? Yeah, I think he was quite interesting in the sense that he started off super sceptical and super mm. interested. Well, he was only interested in Hill House for the, the monetary value. And the idea of inheriting it and kind of selling it off, parceling it off in whatever way. But Markway's mm. interest in the house is uh, academic and he's more invested in the house as, as a kind of like a supernatural entity. And then Ellen is the one with the actual like relationship with the house where they're kind of yeah. like talking to one another. Yeah, exactly. So she's got emotional, Connection. there's academic, there's financial. But I also think that his journey is quite interesting from skeptic to to almost, you know, he feels the cold spot. He picks up on that and you see him kind of getting increasingly mm-hmm. sort of like eked out by the house. And then at the end, um, after Eleanor's suicide, well, suicide in quotation marks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you hear him go, oh, the ground, it should be knocked down and the ground sewed with salt, you know, and and that's such a massive <laughs> change from where he was going. Yeah, like, you know, I'll make so much money off this house, you know, it's going to like, this mm. is going to fuel my life. I'm going to have so much money. Uh, so I think that's what I got from him. And I think also as just a kind of slightly obnoxious, young kind of domineering male influence, I think he was quite interesting because he gets introduced as this young man, you know, but he's just kind of palmed off and mm. he's kind of shown to have no sort of influence in an interesting way. I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah. Um. Well, this is a thing. I actually really didn't have many thoughts on him because... Because <laughs> he didn't sh- do anything. <laughs> no, he didn't. But, you know, I, I, I would say I agree with you on the whole. 
thank you for listening to episode three of the ghastly podcast all about the haunting next week we're going to be continuing with our haunted house series and we're going to be looking at the amityville horror once again stay safe and don't forget to subscribe Bye.